this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Let me introduce you to a woman named Jessica Tyndall, who started a business along with a partner called Dream Enrichment Classes. They were in the business of after-school programming. So if you want your kid to have extra math or extra art classes, you would use one of Jessica's instructors. She had 60 instructors along with five full-time staff when she decided it was time for her to sell the company. A couple of things that I want you to listen for. Listen to her motivation for selling and how she had a very sort of exciting new opportunity she wanted to go to. And that's one of the fundamental foundational ideas behind Prescore, a new tool we've got to evaluate how ready you are to exit your company. It's one of four things that we recommend you do for an exit that is something that you look back out without regrets. So in Jessica's case, she had something exciting she wanted to go do. So have a listen for that. When it comes to boosting the value of her company, listen for the way she did addbacks. That's lingo in the broker terminology for normalizing your profit and loss statement. So have a listen for addbacks. Also listen to the way Jessica advises partners to structure their partnership agreements. Some good tidbits there. Um, she talks about how long she had to run the company before she sort of got rid of some legacy investments that were clogging up her profit and loss statement, making it look worse than it actually should. You'll hear the definition of goodwill and how that impacts the value of your company. And one thing I want you to listen for carefully is how cash moves in a transaction. Now, when you go to sell your company, it's likely that you're gonna think your cash is something you have the rights to and you can take it out before you sell. The buyer, however, may think differently. And so have a listen to how Jessica thought through that and maybe the do-over she'd like to have if she had it to do over again. Here to tell you the rest of her story is Jessica Tyndall. Jessica Tyndall, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So tell me about this business. You were in the business of early childhood education. You know, there was a time when you kind of send the kids off to junior kindergarten and that was sort of it. They came back at the end of the day, watched cartoons. That's all I did. But it's all changed. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, um, you know, when we were kids, we had art and we had, you know, all these extracurricular activities during the school day. But over the years with budget cuts and testing and all kinds of things like that, that limit the instructional hours during the day, there's been a need for after school enrichment programs to get the kids back exposed to those types of things. Is this like the tiger mom? I've read that, you know, that book about like the super keen moms and dads who want to get the kids at edge, like teaching them Mandarin or, you know, is that the kind of mom? Or I would say, I, I want to say no. Um, our, our programs are about fun. Having the kids bring them back to having fun with school, okay. you know, 
the things like art. Art Week was our first program we started with. It's a drawing-based art program, and the kids just get so excited about what they did, and their sense of accomplishment is really high. And then over the years, we saw a big push to the STEM education, which you've probably heard people talk about science. The science. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Math. Yep. And so we added our Lego building program, which we call Early Engineers, uh, after about five years into the business. And uh, that just really took off. And I mean, kids are building and they don't know that they're learning, but they're learning along the way. So it's yeah. really exciting. And so what was the business model? I mean, did you have a physical school that people came to and bought? Like, how did, how did that work? Exactly. So we had a office location where all of our instructors would come to and they would be trained and they would receive all their materials, but they actually went out to the schools. So we would contract with schools. We had over 70 schools in the greater Sacramento area that we worked with. We would rent the facilities there. We would send home flyers and folders each week with the kids and parents would sign up. So it was a parent paid program offered at the school location. And how did you guys get that deal? Because I can imagine that being a really political hot potato about like, why is Jessica's company the one special exclusive provider of this? Why isn't it this other company? Was there any sort of politics you had to stick handle around that? Not really. I mean, there were a few companies offering after school enrichment programs, but it really is a benefit to the school. And they mm. saw it as such, you know, PTAs um, were very big advocates of having us come in so that it's convenient to have it right after school. Usually the school is open for an hour after the school day because the janitors are cleaning up. So it wasn't an issue with that. So it was really just a matter of them, you know, building the trust with the locations. And, you know, I had the business for 13 years and very quickly after the first couple of years, they knew that they could trust us to be there on time. All of our instructors were background checked through the Department of Justice and, you know, they knew they could count on us for a high quality program. Got it. You mentioned the we, and I know there were instructors. It sounds like also there might've been other equity holders in the company. Maybe right. Just, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. For the first 10 years of the business, I had a business partner. And then we also have five full-time employees and 60 instructors as well. Wow. So it's a, it was a good size company. At some point we were talking off, sort of off air before that you decided to part ways with your partner or, or she wanted to go in a different direction, I think. Maybe talk a little bit about that, how you sure. guys, because it sounds like you you bought her out. Maybe talk Correct. a little bit about yeah. that. Sure. Yeah. So um, her husband got relocated out of state and it was a kind of a quick thing that happened. And we kind of briefly talked about putting this business on on the market for sale. Mm. But, you know, in, in a few conversations with brokers, it typically takes nine to 12 months. And I really wanted to avoid resentment from me sticking around working in the business while she's, you know, out of state and working for remotely. Sure. But it's, it's a very hands-on business, not necessarily um, like we were doing a lot of the work at that point. We had most of our staff doing it, but we're, we're there overseeing it. And I felt like there could be some negative consequences for that. So really, I just offered her a number. It wasn't very scientific. I kind of knew like about what it was worth, you know, from doing a basic valuation, but I just offered a number that I thought was fair that I thought she would take. <laughs> and, and she did. So it wasn't a whole lot to it. We kind of came to terms really quickly. That's yeah. great. And how did you come up with the, you mentioned you had a valuation done. Was that a formal valuation or how, what, what sort well, of? I just, I, from talking with the brokers, I knew, you know, I look, looked at the past three years of revenue, mm-hmm. kind of did some ad backs for things like personal expenses or, you know, somewhat personal expenses, I should say. And can, then can you describe what an ad back is. Cause that might be new, new yeah. for some people. Yeah. I mean, there's some expenses that we kind of ran through the business that maybe could be considered things that, 
you know. IRS closed your through this part of the interview. You know, writing writing things off, you know. (laughs) So we would kind of add those back in as like things like that we maybe wouldn't have, like if I was trying to run the business really lean, like we wouldn't necessarily need those expenses. Um, And then looking at the revenue for those past three years and kind of doing a multiple in there and then dividing it by half for her ownership share. Yeah, yeah. And to be clear, the multiple was a multiple of, of profit or what brokers call SDE, I'm assuming, or was it a multiple of revenue? Multiple of the profit. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And and what I, I have no idea. What are these kinds of companies typically trading at? Like, what were the brokers saying is sort of a reasonable range to think two about? To th- two to three times. I mean, most small business I think is in the in the two to three times. Now that I've seen your value builder um, demo, <laughs> I think that we possibly could have gotten higher. And I have a friend that's a broker too, and she says pretty much all the businesses she sold have been about two times. So mm-hmm. in that smaller market. So did you? Did you offer 100% cash or did you ask did. her to take her money? Oh, okay. So it was a yeah. good deal for her in that way. Yeah. Got it. If there's anything, you know, for people listening who might be thinking about buying out their partner, any advice that you might give them, anything you might do differently if, if you had the opportunity to kind of buy out a partner again? Well, I definitely would have a buy-sale agreement. Um, mm-hmm. Having like, I definitely would have thought. I mean, over the years, multiple people had advised us to do that. We didn't really have an exit strategy together, and so not having thought that through, we just kind of thought, well, we'll just do it till we don't want to do it anymore, and then we'll figure it out, um, yeah. <laughs> which is not always the best plan. So I definitely would be more thoughtful in that plan and, and work through the buy-sale agreement, so we just would have those multiples and those numbers kind of predetermined. <laughs> What sorts of things would you want to make sure you included in a buy-sell agreement with a partner? Like if you were advising your daughter who is going out and go, hey, mom, I'm going to start a business with my best friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what would you tell her? Okay, hold on. Go, go slow. Make sure you document these three things. Right. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what normally goes into it, but you know, just how you would come out of evaluation, some financing options predetermined, like, okay, if we were going to do it just so you wouldn't have to necessarily come up with that money right away, if you wanted to buy each other out or they wanted to move on to do something else, or if you wanted to move on to do something else, just to really think through uh, what those scenarios could look like and then come to those terms on the front end while everybody is, you know, happy and excited and all of those things. Yeah. And how did you come up with the money to buy her out? Because it sounds like you did it with cash, like cash up. Yeah, we did it. I think we did two, two installments and um, it was just, it was, we were fortunate to have that on hand to make that investment at that time. So that was also, you know, what I think what made it work so quickly was just Mm -hmm. like, okay, I have this here. You want to move forward with this? She agreed and that was to go. That was after 10 years of owning the business, right? So then right. you continued to run it for three subsequent years. Right, exactly. And I knew at that point that I wanted to move on to something else. I had a couple other businesses, online businesses in the fashion accessory uh, and fashion jewelry realm. They're called Poppy Clips and Pop Charms. Cool. Um, and Actually, so- go, go slow. Is there a website oh, okay. you can point people to? Poppy sure. Clips? Poppy clips, they're magnetic clothing clips. They're kind of a functional product to help clothes fit better. Okay, fun. And that was our first product. And about the time that I ended up selling Dream Enrichment Classes, we were launching our second brand, which is Pop Charms, which are leather wrapped charm bracelets. 
So I was really wanting to be able to focus more on those brands and uh, you know, dream enrichment for me had kind of run its course in terms of my interest and excitement level. So mm-hmm. I was looking for something new and the time had just come. So how did becoming a mom yourself impact your interest in dealing with other people's kids? You know, it was always something that I saw that was important for kids to have access to. But when I became a parent, actually more so when my kids became school age, I saw how convenient it was to have these options, being the mom shuttle that I am and driving kids from activity to activity. It's really nice to have the ones that are offered directly after school. So yeah, I definitely saw the value more so when my kids got to that point. So yeah, yeah. I, I just wondered to what extent, and this is totally out of curiosity, I know with my kids, you know, my interest in, in parenting other people's kids diminished dramatically because I'm like, I, I want to put all my energy into them. But then when I'm done with that, like I'm exhausted. So yeah. I don't have any yeah. time or energy for anybody else's kids. <laughs> right. Totally. I mean, and, yeah. And I, in the beginning, when we first launched the business, we were both teaching a bunch of classes and out there in the field and doing all that. And, you know, and then after a while, we definitely had instructors and substitutes and all that. So they were mostly the ones out teaching the classes at that point. <laughs> So you had these other businesses, again, Poppy Clips and Pop Charms. So you knew you wanted to spend more time on that. Was there sort of a straw that broke the camel's back that said, okay, now's the time that I'm going to sell Dream Enrichment? Was there sort of a triggering event of sorts? Not specifically. It just felt like a lot of little factors like minimum wage in California going up. We have a lot of part-time instructors. We have 60 part-time instructors with Dream and they each work maybe four to six hours a week. Mm. Um, So the turnover rate there is quite high. And we always paid well over minimum wage, but now with minimum wage expected to go up to $15 an hour, we would be barely above that. And Mm -hmm. so it just felt like the squeeze was coming. And with having a more flexible business opportunity, the other businesses I can run exclusively from home, we don't have very many employees. Like it's just, you know, my three kids are getting all three into activities and things like that. Just wanting more free time and flexibility in my schedule. We're kind of the main driving forces. Got it. So what happens next? Did you start to market your business? Did you list it? Did you hire somebody to help? What was your next step? I hired a broker and he went through and did the valuation. And I had actually talked to him originally when I bought my business partner out. So I kind of knew what I needed to do in those next two years to improve our bottom line numbers to get a solid sales price that I would be comfortable with. So I hired him and he did the valuation and we listed it and it sold quite quickly. We listed it in October of 17. And I had a couple buyers by December and it ended up closing in March, uh, March 1st. So it was about a four and a half month process. March 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah, March of last year. Yeah. You, you mentioned you met with a broker and he said that there were some things you needed to do to improve your value. One of which I'm assuming was improve your profitability or increase mm-hmm. your profitability. Because right. It would be a multiple. Was there anything else he suggested you do to jack up the value of your company leading up to an exit? Not specifically. I mean, the things that maybe that he, he didn't necessarily recommend, but we ended up launching a new program called Honeycode. It's a computer coding program. So we started with summer camps and then we offered it during the school day. And that was a good cash injection on on the top and bottom line for us. And so that did help bring the numbers up. Where we were at at the 10 year mark, and I can't remember the exact scenario, but something had happened in one of those previous two years where we had made some large investments and our revenue just was not that great. So I knew I needed to wait for those years to kind of fall off before Mm -hmm. I could get a solid valuation. So I just knew I needed to solidly run the company for two or three more years to be able to get to the number that I would be comfortable with. 
because it sounds like your broker was not just looking at your last complete fiscal year. They, they said, give me your last two or three. Right. So exactly. They want to see three. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So you had the investment years. You kind of needed to wipe those off before you right. had three clean years. Right. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Yep. That's and, then, helpful. You know, and there were some things in there. Like we had um, a huge grant come in one year, 2016, I think it was where a school had all this money to spend and we knew it would be a one-time thing, but we were able to fulfill it. So those are the kinds of things like we had to disclose to the buyer that like that was just a one-time deal, but it still helped our numbers look strong and growth look there. And what were the things, so, so this broker listed the business, marketed it, Mm-hmm. Um, what do they do to market it? Like, what are the sorts of things that they... They have some, they have um, these portals and I think it's similar to like an MLS, but for, for mm-hmm. businesses and they have it listed on there and then they get inquiries through their system and they follow up on them. You know, honestly, I don't, they had, they created a brochure, like an electronic type brochure that they would be able to send out to people. You said you got two offers by December of that year. Mm-hmm. What were the differences between the two offers? Well, there was a few different things. One was kind of a lower offer. Actually, there was there was sort of three offers. So the first one was kind of low. The second one was strange because they wanted to do the allocation with over 50% of it in inventory. And our business doesn't have inventory. We're a surface-based business. So that hmm. one was kind of strange. I, I, you know, I didn't have the energy to look into why that would be you know, more advantageous for them. But That's really that strange. I've never strange. even heard of that. Yeah. So I have no, yeah. no idea what that would be about. Yeah. Okay. I think there's tax advantages on both sides if it's considered inventory, but yeah, so that one was kind of a a weird one. And then the the final offer that we ended up going with just made the most sense because it actually was a company that offered a similar program. They offered after-school chess programs (laughs) and they were only offering them in 10 schools and only in a very specific geographic area that we also cover. So it was a very strategic buy for them to be able to Mm -hmm. expand their chess program and the buyers worked full time. So they wanted kind of the management part of it as well. Right. So they didn't necessarily want you to stick around. They, they were willing to stick around. Is that what you yeah, mean? They were, well, no, they wanted, um, because they were running the, the chess programs just themselves, but they were also working full-time jobs elsewhere. I see. And okay. so they wanted to be able to kind of offload some of that work onto our staff because whether you're offering one program or 10 programs in this type of business, it's just a lot of it's the same work. You, you have the same contact and you're kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. And you had the five people working in the office, right. the 60 right. instructors. Right. Got it. What was the, if you don't mind me asking, what was the multiple of profit they were offering? What was the low ball offer as a multiple profit? And then what was the higher one? Um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I would say the lower one was closer to two and the higher one was closer to like 2.75. And so did you go through, you know, brokers talk about this, um, this ad back process, some M&A guys refer to it as sort of normalization, but did you go through and, and, and sort of scrub out any unusual expenses, one-time yeah. expenses. You go through all that stuff to get exactly. There. Yeah. How much did you try to play the two offers uh, off each other, saying to the higher one, "Hey, we got another offer. Can you do a little better?" I don't. Th- I think the timing w- was such that that we didn't really we didn't do that. One kind of came in. I met with them. I wasn't crazy about the the whole situation, so mm-hmm. we kind of moved on from that one. And then the next one came in. So we kind of evaluated them each separately. It would have been nice to have a multiple offer situation and be able to do that. But yeah, I mean, and one thing that I was going to mention, I should have mentioned this earlier, is the allocation. I think having doing the allocation closer to the beginning of the sale, like how the sale is going to be broken out, 
Um, what do you mean by that? How the sales is going to be broken so up? So when you do your taxes, there's a portion that goes to Goodwill, a portion, or an, my business, a huge part of it is Goodwill because mm -hmm. there's not a tangible product or service like, you know, um, so it's just the relationships with the schools, the relationships with the parents. So mm -hmm. there's Goodwill, there's inventory, there's supplies and fixtures, and then the non-compete. So you assign a value to each of those things. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the sales price is broken up into percentages for each of those things. And it came to a point where we did that towards sort of towards the end of the sale. And I remember thinking like that, it could be a total deal breaker if they didn't agree to it. Because in my mind, my business was primarily Goodwill. Like that's what it is. But that's not tax friendly to the buyer because mm -hmm. they have to write that off over 15 years or 10 years or something like that um, versus like the other things can be written off in the first year. Hmm. So that was almost a deal breaker because, you know, and I wish we could have agreed to that earlier. It ended up working out and it was fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, that's one thing that in talking to other people that are selling their businesses, they are trying to do that part of the process earlier. Yeah, I can speak directly to our listeners and say, you know, in a, in a company, you've got a book value that essentially the value of the hard assets that in your case, it would have been the tables and chairs in the office, but probably very limited in a service business. Right. And then you have the value of the company, what it's worth to a buyer. And the difference between those two would be your goodwill, essentially the difference between what your company's worth and the hard assets that you could sell. And, uh, Obviously, in a service business, that is what you're selling is goodwill, and you want to maximize that as a as an entrepreneur. So it sounds like you did a great job of that right. because your assets yeah. were so understandably right. limited. You right. didn't have a big factory or a bunch of right. as you said. If you had it to do over again, what might you do differently? If you could just rewind the clock, is there one or two things you might you might try to do differently? Well, one thing one thing for sure that I would do differently is, um, and this might be get a little too complicated, but for our business, because we collect in advance for these classes, so people sign up for summer camp, they start signing up for summer camp in February. Right. Summer camp doesn't happen until you know June, July, August. So we had a lot of prepaid services. They might call it something else. We call it prepaid services, where the parents are prepaying for these services. Mm -hmm. So I was collecting this revenue, but when it was my business, but then on the date of the sale, we had to figure out how much was I had already collected for services that had not been rendered mm -hmm. and that we negotiated there was a percentage where I would keep a, a I would keep part of it because I had done the marketing for it and the and, and you know had had outlaid some expenses related to that mm -hmm. um, but my mistake because it would took me about two days to calculate that number <laughs> I didn't do it I didn't do it in advance I kind of estimated what I thought it was um, and I was way off, <laughs> significantly off. And so that kind of hurt because you, you credit that back to the sales price, the portion to the, to the buyer. So you're way off, meaning you underestimated how much cash you'd taken in. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Got so it. That, so you would have known that going in. Yeah. I would have been running those numbers kind of periodically throughout the year to know, because there's certain times where we don't have a lot with the end of the school year and the summer camps are already underway. Like it's not, it's not, either certain times of the year where it's going to be much higher than others. And I think when we started the sales process, I had pulled a number. I had, I had done a rough number just to give myself an idea. But then because we were in a totally different cycle with the summer camps coming, the number was just significantly higher than I had estimated up front. And had you known that, how would you have acted differently or what would you have done differently? Other than I'm not, just- I'm not sure. Maybe I would have tried to fight, 
or, you know, negotiate for a better percentage, or I just would have had my head wrapped around better. Like, you know, that the, the number, that the actual number coming into my bank account at the end of the day would be less. Yeah. 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 Did you buy yourself a trophy or anything to sort of mark the, the win? No, I didn't. And I'm really kicking myself now. Um, and in, in fact, over the last year, I've done a lot of work in personal development and all this stuff lately about, you know, celebrating your wins. It's so important. And, you know, I'm definitely doing a better job of that now. Um, but that was probably something that I, de- I mean, I definitely should have done that at the time. Yeah. Going back to the deal. So, uh, you know, roughly 2.7, was that all cash or did you have to sort of structure the payment in some way or take some debt? What was the no, that was all, it was, I think they might've gotten a loan for a portion of it. I can't, I'm not sure how they structured it on their end, but I got the money all up front. Great. So, so yes, cash. I mean, I think it's pretty typical from talking with my broker up front, but the seller carries, you know, 10 to 20% just to kind of show good faith that like, mm-hmm. you know, the business is going to be successful and you're willing to take on that risk, but it, ne- it never really came to even that being an option. So I felt fortunate for that. And that's because they didn't ask for it or you didn't offer it? Both. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. So you, to do differently, you might celebrate your win. You might be calculating (laughs) the amount of cash you'd taken in before Mm -hmm. services rendered differently. Fantastic. Um, I know people are going to want to run or reach out and learn more about Poppy Clips and Pop Charms. Is there a a place that they can do that, Jessica, or do you accept LinkedIn requests or what's the best way for people to reach out and say hi? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we have both poppyclips.com and popcharms.net and you can find me. We, are, we have Instagram accounts for both of those. Um, awesome. You can reach me that way. So yeah, happy to hear from everybody. There you go. So poppyclips.com and popcharms.net. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.